Season 2, Episode 5. Hello, I'm Pat Axbom. And I'm James Roy Lawson. And this is UX Podcast. We're in Stockholm, Sweden, and you're listening to us all over the world from Suriname to Italy. Ben Sauer is a product and design leader, author, and speaker. As a UX designer at the award-winning agency Clearleft, one of the first UX agencies in the world, Ben worked with clients such as the BBC and Tesco. And he also worked at Babylon Health as a director of product leading a team of 100 on AI-based products. And Ben is obviously also a seasoned writer and blogger, and we invited him to the show to speak about his latest accomplishment, his recently published book, Death by Screens. Which has the subtitle, How to Present High Stakes Digital Design Work and Live to Tell the Tale. Okay, Ben, well... Diving straight into this of you know, setting the first question here, who are the ones who are actually suffering a death by screens? <laughs> oh, that's a, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so some people may get this from the title alone, some may not, I don't know. Um, but the, the title is a riff on death, the phrase death by PowerPoint. Right. In the sense that designers can kill people by just showing a series of screens over and over and over again. Hence, the book is called uh, Death by Screens. I actually trialed a few metaphors to see which ones sort of stuck with people. So the reason the book is titled this is partly from kind of product experimentation in itself. Like, what did people actually remember when I would tell them the concept? Mm. Um, but to talk about the practical thing that it means, um, I think that we often have a tendency to just kind of show the work. And then if the work is like a whole series of screens that we're going to show to people or our stakeholders, then often that becomes a pretty boring sequence to talk through. Um, and I liken it to sort of the Monty Python spam sketch, you know, design, 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 mm -hmm. spam, 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 spam. And so you can very easily and accidentally bore your audience to death. But there's a secondary meaning there, which is that when you do that, you're also going to die on stage, right? That's the other phrase we use in the West, right? Death, a performer dying on stage. So it kind of means both, right? Yeah. You lose the audience because you bore them to death and you die on stage as a result. So that's that's the meaning of death by screens. Yeah, And then, of course, then you've got the repetition as being oh, someone who stands on stage and dies and you're not delivering a good experience to your audience. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's exactly the heart of it, right? It's about crafting a mini experience for the people hearing about your design. Um, and, and that can be just as much an experience. And in fact, there's even a piece of advice I give in the book where I sort of say, create a little mini experience map of the structure of your talk, because then you can see the ups and downs of the experience that you're creating. Essentially a user journey, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I think that um, one thing I don't really say in the book is that I kind of accidentally fell into that myself. I, I remember outlining, I was doing a workshop in India actually, and I was outlining a presentation 
to show the sort of results of a week's work. And I was doing it horizontally and then it just came to me in that moment, oh, I can see the ups and the downs here from this outline, but if I outline vertically, I, I can't see that experience as easily. So yeah, um, hopefully that's a useful piece of advice for people in the book. Outline horizontally. <laughs> yeah. Outline horizontally. Yeah, which, I mean, I uh, something I noticed, we, we actually were reading the book um, well, not together. Us, it wasn't like we were kind of reading the book and you were turning a page, and then Pear and I was kind of like you know reading after it. We were reading. We were co-located next to each other. We were co-located when we were reading your 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 book, um, and um, as you will know, you you we we talked about giving some questions in advance for this um, for this interview, and um, when I was sat there reading the book and um, thinking about the design process that you apply. Um, to delivering um your presentations um that you recommend anyway, um, it just really just struck me the the design process that you were applying to delivering a presentation, and also maybe even trying to apply now to this podcast interview. <laughs> so yeah, I, to some degree, yeah. So, so there was kind of a penny dropped, yeah, a penny dropped about kind of the the overarching um, structure that you're trying to give us in the book and what that is. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is a process of designing an experience, and it needs a design head to kind of immerse itself in what that experience is going to be like. And I think that it partly comes as a response to how maybe design has shifted over, certainly since you two and myself have had a career, right? In, in the sense that I think that a lot of design communication today has naturally and sensibly become more informal um, over the last, let's say, 15, 20 years. And I think that's because designers are now working in small product teams and have, you know, reasonable degrees of autonomy. But I think for you two, and when I started, design and UX specifically was often practiced agency side. And so when you're mm. showing your work, you're kind of selling yourself inherently, and it was usually stakeholders. And so my book is sort of a response to the fact that I think there's a bit of a lost art in presenting design and that it's become more challenging to do it and to apply that kind of thinking because people are just not practicing it as much. And I noticed that when I was leading design teams over the past few years, it seemed to be more of a challenge than it was when I started. Um, and yeah. so, so... So the hypothesis there, Ben, sorry, yeah. the hypothesis there is that now we've shifted. So instead of being a bulk of us working agency side, now the bulk of us are working um, organization side internally, in-house. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and of course, the requirement to be, you know, sort of selling the work it has, has to some degree gone away, but it still happens every now and again. And that's the kind of scenario that I'm designing for. And, and hopefully it will really help people lift their careers if they can learn to sell their work and explain it in the way that I've put into the book. Mm. And I have to say, I, I, as I teach at a design school, uh, I, I was thinking as I was reading that the one of the big target groups for this are the junior designers who are coming out of design school because it's not part of the education. They're not really learning this. They're not practicing it, as you're saying. Uh, so I was 
I, I can I think I actually heard them express this and that they really need more presentation skills and helpful hints and tips, which is exactly what they're getting in your book. So this is definitely one of those that I'll be re- recommending to junior designers coming out. Oh yeah, that's great to hear. Um, one of um, one of the processes I went through in creating the book was to use beta readers. So I gathered some people early in their UX careers, and then I would get them to read sections, and it was to help me figure out how to improve the book. So kind of usability usability testing for for books, I guess. And one of the designers that I interviewed was somebody who came from the architecture world, and they actually studied architecture at the Bauhaus. And so we were talking about um, the the act of presenting. And he told me that at the Bauhaus on day one, they kind of sit you down and say, you are going to present a story today about your work as as a designer and an architect. And if you can't do that today on day one here, you should probably leave. And I was like, wow, that's really harsh, right? (laughs) Forcing people into this sort of high stakes presentation on day one. And, you know, of course, we wouldn't want to do that to any students today. But I I really understood the principle of it, which is that if you if you want to be, you know, a good designer, it's really important that you can communicate it well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, communication that comes up again and again in chats we have. And then when we're talking or taking part in UX education sessions ourselves. Um, But this is a good point that communication isn't 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 just kind of like you as a designer on to maybe a developer or a product owner, then this is an aspect of communication from a design perspective to stakeholders or a slightly, um, a group that's a little bit further away perhaps than your daily work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, it's, although I give in a sort of an example scenario in the book, I've, I've been reasonably nonspecific about what a high stakes presentation means, right? Um, because it can mean different mm-hmm. things to different groups of people. It could be, you're doing a presentation to the entire company and so you need to spend more effort getting that communication right. Or it could just mean a group of uh, stakeholders or if you're working agency side, it can mean clients. So I think it's important to recognise that I'm um, high stakes can mean different things to different people. But generally, the methods that I put into the book are generally applicable in most of those situations. So there are some really important messages and pillars in the book, like, at least that I I think. And and one of those, as you're thinking of a high stakes meeting and and the stakeholders in that meeting, is this idea of thinking of the stakeholders as collaborators, because so often we think of them as listeners or someone who's supposed to just understand what we want them to understand, rather than th- uh, seeing them as as part of the way of solving whatever so- issue we're trying to solve. C- can you speak to stakeholders ask collaborators what does that really mean yeah i think that um you know hierarchy power the formality of the scenario creates preconceptions and changes in behavior whereas actually although i put uh you know i recommend putting a high degree of effort into you know sort of crafting a presentation and being very deliberate about it actually what a lot of what i'm doing you know and recommending in the book is to try to puncture through that formality and to get to a place where we can really understand each other and have really connected conversations about the design because ultimately anyone can contribute to design and especially in a situation where 
you know, you, you're, you're dealing with shared organizational needs. We should be treating them as collaborators and not just as, uh, you know, bosses or people that, who, who have power over us. And so there's some methods that I put into the book which are deliberately targeted to kind of put people into a slightly more collaborative space while you're presenting to them. Um, because that's that's ultimately, you know, who they are. They're our colleagues. And if we stripped away the power structure, we would just want to be working as effectively as we can together. Nice. I think, yeah, I think far too often as designers, we we forget just this, that about applying our designer skills um, to more than just the screens that we're working with. Um I mean, it, it, it often, for me anyway, it seems to come as an aha moment for many designers when they realize that collaborating or like a developer experience or a stakeholder experience, um, to, to, to consider that and to work with it and to design that experience isn't really much different from the same process you would follow doing your screens or, you know, doing your website or your app and so on. But we forget this. We, we, or we don't, I don't know, if it seems way too often that we just don't make the penny doesn't drop yeah i think it's a combination of um not realizing where we can apply our powers but also mm. sort of time right is that you know when you're asked to design something you apply your design head don't you right and then in these other situations you act a little bit more unconsciously or um habitually and so we f we forget to use those powers and i think that there's something there about um being like deliberately habitual about this like trying to raise the game when it comes to how you communicate and and not just falling into kind of standardized habits if you like um and i didn't really speak to that in the book but i think you're right in that it is applying design thinking in a much sort of broader range of your work definitely i mean everything you're recommending really is part of designing the meeting and designing the presentation it's it all it all is design thinking, which is fantastic. Uh, and another one of those I wanted to address that I, I really loved was that the part where you actually think about how everybody's mind wanders during a meeting mm -hmm. and thinking back to yourself when I I have to just as as we're about to attend a conference, I'm realizing my mind will wander during people's presentations. I know that. But I don't think about it enough when I'm myself giving a presentation about how everyone's mind is wandering all the time. How do we manage that? Um, I yeah, it's a it's a fascinating question. I mean, I guess the, the the sort of main direct piece of advice in in the book we talked about a little bit already is to create an experience map for your presentation and your meeting, right? So that you are actually deliberately crafting the kind of ups and the downs. And when you outline, you can start to see where, you know, you're, you might lose their attention because you're going into too much detail, for example. I think that's a very common habit um, for us designers. Although I do want to tell you a funny story. I just got back from Japan and I was training some parts of the book there as well. And I did a talk on it at UX there, who's Tokyo. And I learned that... Um, in Japan, it's not considered rude to fall asleep during a meeting because that signifies that everything is fine. <laughs> and I, oh, I, think that speaks wow. to, I think that speaks to another element here, which is that I think it's, it's impossible to hold somebody's full attention for, you know, let's say an entire hour's presentation yeah. at all times. 
but to be really clear that that is a good goal to have and to think about where you're going to hold somebody's attention easily and where you're not is is, is an important sort of design consideration for a mi- both a meeting and a presentation. You've also think about the the ebbs and flows, the ups and downs of the presentation that you both just mentioned there, then where you might have given too much information so people get bored and fall asleep or, or drift away from the presentation. But there's the counter aspect of that too, that there are moments you, you'd learn or you, you need to understand the moments of your presentation, I guess, where you're delivering something which will provoke a reaction, will provoke a thought response, will make people go, Oh God, now I understand. So that means, and then they start drifting off into their own little design world, planning world, oh, yeah. implementation world. How am I going to solve this? Cause you've done the reveal. Yeah. So I, t- I talk about managing that um, in a very particular way. And I-, I think it's, it's akin to sort of the way a magician operates. So one of the things I recommend in the book um, is that you don't show the design. If you're going to show a screen, don't show it all at once. Right. Mm. You know, break it down, use, I don't know, um, blurring or, you know, obscuring of your design and then talk through the elements uh, slowly so that you are managing exactly where their attention goes at any given moment so that they're not wandering off and thinking about implementation or whether the KPIs on this piece of the feature set are going to go down, you know, right. And and that's mm. how a magician actually operates, right? They will often do something to hold our attention in one place while they're doing a trick with their other hand. And of course, we're not doing the trick with our other hand, but it's the same sort of method, right? Which is don't just show everything, like craft the experience of sh- revealing the design uh, just as much as you have the design itself. Because that's how you stop kind of you know, silly questions or people jumping ahead or going off topic or thinking about implementation details is just by making sure that you've crafted where their attention goes at any given moment. Yeah. And you also talked about attention grabbers because what you just said about one idea per slide and consensus is insight, that's sort of uh, related to this. And the th- the part about just showing one thing at a time and not the whole screen that spoke to me because I know I've done that so many mm. times and, and people have just got sidetracked by the things that aren't really part of the design. It's just there to actually fill out the screen, uh, which, of course, is a problem in itself when I'm designing. So it's just embarrassing to admit. <laughs> but, but, uh, I'm guilty but, of all, uh, the, all the crimes in the book. Are things <laughs> I've done. They're all mistakes I've made. <laughs> But but the other part of that then is the you introduce the concept of, of attention grabbers as something that you really need to focus on as well to understand when you, when you need to have them. But what is an attention grabber? What would be an example of an attention grabber? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that um, if we look at places where good storytelling happens in other mediums, like in movies or in books or you know TED talks there will tend to be something at the beginning that really grabs your, or near the beginning, at least, that really grabs your attention and gets your mind into the kind of um, uh, the themes and the action of the overall story that is being told. So this Uh, is the big opening scene. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and Hollywood, for example, we're going to talk about Hollywood, has moved in that direction because I think writers and 
probably marketing departments, I'd imagine as well, have become more and more aware that you need to grab the attention of the audience right up front. And it, when you do that, it means you're going to get better attention for obviously the rest of the piece, right? That's, that's the whole idea of having an attention grabber. But the second thing that I actually recommend doing in the book is that that attention grabber should speak to the themes of what you come onto later. Um, so um, you ask the question, you know, what is an attention grabber? Well, the, the examples I give in the book are, are, are fairly simple things at varying levels of difficulty. So a very simple one might just be a quote at the beginning, right? So some piece of wisdom, you know, that classic Einstein quote around um, if I had an hour to save the world, I would spend 55 minutes uh, exploring the problem and five minutes designing the solution. Now that one, if you have an audience who struggles to understand user research, that's a good quote to start with if you're going to then talk about user research later on and why it's valuable. Mm. Mm. Um, and a couple of other examples are quizzes. Um, those are quite nice ways of engaging in a very informal, interactive way at the beginning of a meeting. Um, and then there's storytelling itself. So c can you tell a micro story at the beginning that then sets up the themes for what you want to talk about later? And kind of the hardest one I talk about, and it's much harder to achieve, but it is really valuable, is just humour. Like if you can get people laughing at the start, um, that, mm. that really helps, especially when you're delivering um, a challenging or an unexpected message. The talk, when we talk there about storytelling, um, it does make me wonder, um, how do you go about deciding who's going to be the hero of, of, of your story? Because I mean, you know, it's not about me. It's not about me. I'm not the hero as the designer, am I? Or? Uh, no, no, you're not. Um, I think it's important it. to, you know, story is a very general concept. And, and, and we, I apply it in the book in a few different ways. So there is the story of the design being used. So actually talking through how a user uses the product. As, a, yeah. as, as one of the best ways to explain the rationale, the why of the work. So that's sort of the, the, the sort of mini story within the overall story. And then there's the story of the presentation itself. And mm. that is, um, you know, not so much an explicit story in the way we would normally think of it, but it is kind of a narrative and it has structure, a, a, you know, beginning, middle and end. And so we can think about storytelling methods. Uh, in the same way. Now, I think your question is like, how do you choose the sort of hero or the protagonist of the design yes. story, right? So somebody using it, how do you go about choosing that? Well, I think that, you know, I, I talk in, in the book a little bit about sort of not doing a sort of persona level work. It's just more sort of setting up a little story that makes sense. And when it comes to choosing who that person is who's experiencing your new piece of design, I think probably... It, I, for me, it's not about ideals or happy paths. For me, it's about what do you want to talk about in this design and which users are experiencing um, the thing that, that helps you tell that story. So in the, in the book, the example I give is of a food delivery app. Um, and the person, sorry, the designers are designing for uh, better options for people with dietary requirements. And I picked a vegan user because that allowed uh, the story to unfold because, um, you know, that person has very particular needs when they're ordering the food. And 
the app is essentially responding more effectively uh, to those needs through the design. So the choice of a vegan, it could have been, you know, somebody with an allergy or could have been something else, but it was whoever allows you to tell the story of your new work most effectively. Um, and that's different to sort of, you know, some sort of idealized user or just picking the happy path. It's pick the user that allows you to tell a good story about the work, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. As my question was actually, I think you answered it in that I was thinking, how do you separate these two? Because I'd realized that, yeah, I've got one hero that's going to be the actual user of the product. But now I was thinking about, yeah, in the room, in the meeting, then like you said, there's a, there's a story art going on there. And, mm. you know, is it the stakeholders that are the heroes of that story or me as a designer, like you say? So, so yes, yeah, so I think you did answer that. There is two, there are going to be two different sets of heroes effectively in how you working your way through this. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, 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 I certainly don't think too often about, um, the people in the room as being the heroes. I think there's a little bit of mm. danger in <laughs> talking about ourselves or our stakeholders as heroes. <laughs> but I'm using the word hero, but protagonist you said, and that's yeah. probably a better way of doing it. I mean, there, yeah. there is still, there is still a story. We still need to get people in the room to feel like they've reached the right destination at the end of the journey. Haven't we? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 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 For sure. I mean, for me that connects to, when you're saying choose, don't choose the the happiest user, or don't choose the one that just first comes to mind, is really connects to your message about prioritizing the less powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, that comes later in the book, but for me, I immediately that connected with, well, I'm I'm telling a story here about someone who is ha- who is struggling, and I could probably teach the audience a lot by showcasing that with someone who is a lot less powerful than they are accustomed to. Yeah, I mean, there's some very deliberate choices there about how do we help to produce a bit of empathy for the user's struggle in telling that story. And prioritise the less powerful refers to when you're moderating the meeting, right? So if there's a design discussion and people are taking turns to give feedback, kind of how do you moderate that? And there's a section in the book around being more inclusive with discussions. And you can do a lot as a moderator to make sure that People who are not normally listened to or prioritised um, get a chance to to input. So, um, you know, uh, picking women first when people when a bunch of people raise their hands, pick the women first, or you know, the less powerful or the less privileged in the room, because then you're signalling that their voices matter, and you actually give permission for for people who are not normally or often not normally given space to give their opinion uh, to do so as well. Um, this is actually something I learned from a series of workshops at universities. I was running a whole series of workshops. This is 10 or something years ago. Um, and I noticed in the academic community that male academics would just constantly speak over female academics. And so I had to kind of improvise sort of moderation <coughs> methods to make sure that the right voices were heard at the right times. Um, and over a series of workshops, I, I learned a few tricks to do that. Mm. Yeah. You you also give the recommendation of, of going around the room and giving everybody time to reflect. But that also means that you actually do have to give everyone time to reflect. And that can take a lot of time. And you have risk that someone takes over again by speaking too long. Yeah, I mean, there's a few things in there about that. And, and you know, obviously going yeah. around and giving everybody time to speak is not always appropriate. It depends on the size and the scenario um, that you're dealing with. Um, but yes, um, 
it can be difficult to moderate those who feel licensed to just speak endlessly to their own opinions. And, uh, and there's a few things I recommend about that. Um, so one is, um, and I think I heard this from UIE. I'm not sure. I, I want to give credit to the right place. I can't remember exactly where I heard it, but was to separate um, some roles. If you're in a team, have one person act as the moderator while you are responding to questions. And if you can find somebody in a more senior role to do to do moderation, that really helps because then they're more at license to interrupt. And I give a few interruption sort of moderation tips in the book as well. So if somebody is going on too long, how do you interrupt them and say, you know, um, listen, I'm I'm I know this is really important. Would would it be all right if we move this to a later discussion just so that we can get through uh, all the topics that people have? Uh, or questions they have uh, in in this hour today, for example. So there's a few things in there about managing um, the conversation. Yeah, yeah, man- managing it, deflecting it, and kind of oh, grab packaging stuff. So taking things, making sure it's not lost, and then moving on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. As it one thing that uh, I thought was kind of really interesting was of course the task checklist that you've got um in the book um yeah a, a, a list that you just take off as you as you plan it and do it um and the the essence of of what you're um, saying here is there are a lot of things that need to be planned and need to be thought about and considered as part of um oh delivering that well um structured um important presentation um and it's a lot of stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is. And I wondered, it's like, yeah. And, you know, and I, my, my heart started to beat a little bit looking down the list thinking, oh, God, but what if, what if I really don't have the time and, and budget for that? I mean, am I, am I basically doomed to do a bad job? <laughs> am I going to die on stage because I don't have the time and budget? Oh, I, I, I'm sorry you felt that way. I probably should have put a, a bit more of a stronger caveat <laughs> in the book. <laughs> um, so, I mean, look, I, I actually do say it somewhere in the book. Look, the, the structure and the checklist and all the tasks I propose along the way are not certainly not intended for every single presentation you give. And a lot of them are designed for people who are just starting out on their journey in public speaking and presenting. Mm. And the more you do it, the less you'll need those things. Um. But, you know, it's it's designed to be a sort of idealized scenario that I give, right? So as you work through the book, you can kind of go through that checklist and go, oh, is that important to me? Is that, you know, just making sure that some of those things that will really make for a great presentation experience for the audience are at least considered, even if they don't have to be acted on. I should say one really important thing about this, which is that I designed the book carefully so that you can pick it up, even if you're in a rush, even if you've got like, a day or a few hours to, until your presentation, you're still going to get value. You don't need to consume the whole thing in order to get some value from it. So I put the book, the, the chapters around suggested structure near the beginning so that if all you have time to do is just reorder some of the things that you've already put together using some of the structure tips, you could do that. Um, and, and if that's the only thing you get you know, on repeat use is just you refer to the structure, great. So you can do that quickly and easily. And many of the lessons in the book are actually in the table of contents. So again, you can kind of just scan it quickly. It doesn't need to be consumed in entirety to be useful, if that makes sense. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And and I think 
one reflection I had after looking and thinking about that the the task checklist and task checklist and the book as a whole was you know the importance of us allocating or giving ourselves time for this in what we're working on. I mean, like you said at the beginning, Ben, that we all three of us have been in a world where the the agency dominated you know almost entirely in the beginning of our, our towards the beginning of our careers, and now in house does in a different way. Um, but you know. If we don't allocate five hours, ten hours, forty hours, whatever, depending on the thing you're 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 working on, then you aren't giving yourself the opportunity to succeed in this area. And I don't I don't know how many times, whether it's sprint sprint planning or you know other kind of planning, do we really consider the time, you know, giving ourselves the time to do a good job in this area as part of our estimations? Yeah, I think not. I actually think that the more informal ways we work today mean that we are um, less attuned to explaining the work um, and we don't give it as much time. Um, I think there's something there. When you did work agency, sort of everything had to be explained because you are handing it over to, you know, a, a sort of a third party, if you like. So there's a sort of forcing function in working agency side where you, it forces you to communicate um, in a different way. But yeah, I do think that working internally, I've noticed that people who, junior designers who've never had the experience of agency, they do struggle with this stuff a bit more than people who've had a bit of time in agency. Um, And I would argue that ultimately, you know, we keep talking about, you know, a seat at the table. And this is kind of it. I mean, I don't mean presentation specifically, but to gain influence, right, we have to be better communicators. We have to be spreading kind of useful and catchy ideas around an organization that's how you gain influence and so um you know i I train i I did some training for a team in berlin not too long ago and the design leader who hired me to run a workshop about the methods in the book she told me that um when she worked uh, agency side they would spend just as many hours sweating the words to explain a concept or an issue as they would the design itself and there was a kind of mantra yeah. in the agency where she worked where, you know, you had to create the perfect set of words to explain a concept. And, mm, and I do yeah. think that we underestimate just how much influence we can gain by sweating these details that you might put into a presentation, for example. I think you're right there. And thinking, thinking about some of the different parts of, of our design work where you now that time is respected i guess it's like when you do user research i mean you know if you're doing like five interviews then you're going to need you know, like what is it four times as much as that time to actually write up your your you know interviews and come with some insights um i mean if you're um thinking some of the other aspects of what we do um you again you we've baking in time but just when it comes to this design bit we do we don't seem to bake in that presentation time. Oh, education if i'm doing a course yeah. i know i'm going to spend like you know four or five times as many hours preparing the, the, the course as I am delivering it. All these kind of things. Right. You're taking responsibility in that situation yeah. in a way that you're not during your everyday working day, which is really strange because we talk about this meeting hysteria. Everyone's talking about it today. And there are too many meetings and they're not well performed. But if they were actually planned and performed the way that you advocate and teach them in this book, Ben, that means it would be so much nicer to go to work and, and attend <laughs> these meetings. <laughs> Yeah, we also don't have time for it. I do know that as well. Maybe because we have too many meetings. 
I, yeah, I just exactly. want to read you this quote that kind of speaks to this. Um, I don't know if you know Tanner Christiansen, um, designer at Netflix, Lyft and Facebook. I, I just pulled this quote from them. Um, in, it's in the book. When first designing something, getting caught up in the details is easy. But once you try explaining what you're building to someone else, you must distill down what's essential and how everything fits together to make sense of it. And I think that often <laughs> we're just not taking the time to do that distillation because we're so busy yeah. focused on other things and being productive and, you know, working in an agile way. And that distillation, I think James is what you're mentioning, right? We, how, how often do we take yeah. the time to do that distillation? I think is the challenge here. Yeah. It's like, it's all well and good saying, Oh yeah, that, that logging page will take me, I don't know, 10 hours to do in Figma. Mm. But you know, you're, you're focusing purely on the tooling of that task. Um, as opposed to everything else. Yeah, or the principles that you're operating on or the goal that you have in mind or the way that people behave that you want to serve better. We 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 need to be able to explain those in words and, and it's it's hard. It's it's really hard work. And I and I've noticed that I think designers sort of are not well inclined to do the sort of writing wordy thinky part for everyone. I I, I totally respect the fact that it's not necessarily why people got into the craft. Um, and so as a result, I put a few kind of writing hacks or sort of thinking hacks into the book to try to make it a little bit easier to kind of get over that hump of having to explain yourself. I hope, though, um, now at the end of this conversation, that I hope people will be inspired to, to you know, get over that hump and um, to do better um, in their high stakes um, presentations. Thank you very much, Ben, for joining us. Thank you so today. much, Ben. It was wonderful to chat to you guys. I think it's fascinating. Um, we talked about in the middle of this interview um, the the thing where many of us, many designers, we we struggle with things in our work, and it shouldn't really be as big a struggle as maybe it is because it's it's a design problem, um, but we don't always see it as a design problem. So so this whole thing about well um, presenting you design um, to a group of stakeholders someone like Ben talks about in his book um, that is a design problem and we don't see it and what Ben does here which is wonderful he's reframed it so it's easier for us to hook into as a design problem and apply our already existing skills as designers yeah I agree I mean it's kind of weird that we always forget that everything is a design problem and then we jump into something and I guess we, we're so attuned to looking at the output rather than thinking and thinking and planning and taking the time and, and making the effort to plan and, and the, the spending time and energy on it in a way that should be obvious when, it, when you see it as a design problem because you need to do the research. Hmm. I mean, I wonder... Okay, we we as humans love boxing things. We love putting things into categories and boxes. Um, is is the reason we don't see some of these things as design problems because there's a there, well, there's a barrier there, isn't there? We're we're putting them outside of our box, yeah. so we're blinkering, out, we're closing our eyes, closing our minds at times to the, these things being design problems, maybe at least initially, um, which which then makes us feel anxious, makes us feel. Um, you know, concerned, worried, um, nervous, 
inadequate, all these kind of negative Yeah, like, like Ben was saying about hierarchy and power and formality, yeah. it, it, you think there, there, there's a preconception of what this is supposed to look like, how it's supposed to work, what a, what a presentation needs to be, uh, and you forget that you actually are in control of that if you spend the time with the people you are talking to. And of course, Ben himself says high stakes. Yeah. Um, you know, so... so that Ben is actually kind of feeding our anxiety, I guess, by telling us these are high stakes. Right. Things, which is, um, At no. the same time saying that high stakes can be different things for different people. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And uh, we've got to collaborate and work together. Yeah, exactly. I just love how practical this book is because sometimes I can almost kick myself because I, I go into these... Uh, ideas and thought experiments where I spend too much time looking at like systems thinking and trying to figure out complex connections. But this type of book and what Ben is doing here, it's exactly what so many people need to just get over that metaphorical bump in the road, just help reach, help people reach both better output, but also a next step in their career, or at least a better understanding of, of the value of the work within their organization. So it's just such an important piece of the puzzle in the overarching system of design thinking that I was alluding to. So I'm just so glad Ben took the time for this work. Yeah, and I I really am going to try to allocate some time next time I'm going to do... Actually, next time I'm going to do a presentation full stop. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to worry if it's a high-stake one or not. I'm really going to try hard to, to set, a ta- set aside some time um, to do some, some horizontal outlining of the, the presentation I'm doing. Um, and you know to map out um, the, my thinking about what I want to present and, and hook into some of the um, the points that Ben said because it's w- way too easy to skip over it. Exactly. And one one big takeaway for myself personally, it's okay to repeat myself because people's minds are wandering, and making sure that I repeat certain points that's just important and helpful for for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, yeah, reading the audience too, Pat. Leaving them moments to think, wonder, like you said. Exactly. Mm. And, and leaving them some time to fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Snore quietly, please, during my presentation. Oh, there's a day that you can start with your funny slide at the beginning. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Attention grabbers. Right. Yes, I mean, so many good points in here. I'm, I'm glad I, we do this outro so I had time to re-listen to our interview because now again I made some notes about things I need to think about next time I'm doing a presentation or teaching yep you should invite me along Per so I can I can do a kind of performance review of course exactly <laughs> <laughs> recommended listening dear listeners um, well it's it's related and it's useful and it's useful in slightly different ways actually it's 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 fascinating to listen back to to our chat with tom griever about articulating design design decisions yeah um it's it's um, there are, so there are some common themes um but tom frames things slightly differently to how ben has framed things um you know um, so I, th- I think it's really worth following up and listening to it. Um, originally, episode 119 in series one, um, or season one, uh, we repeated it as 312. But on top of that, I can thoroughly and highly recommend looking at um, our tag meetings. Yeah. Because you were uh, saying to me uh, on Telegram the other day that you, there's actually a sort of a series that we created about presenting to stakeholders now. 
I think we can put one together, Pat. Yeah. There are there yeah. are definitely episodes that all of them kind of link together in a way which I think can be more useful as a whole. Yeah. Um, but just the meetings tag, there we've been, we've talked to um, people about designing workshops, designing meetings, um, articulating your design decisions. Now we've talked to, to Ben um, about um, presenting um, in high-stakes environments. Um, we've done storytelling um, a few times as well, which helps with the, the narrative side of stuff. So we've got a little toolbox of podcast episodes that you could use to up your game in this area. Definitely, yeah. And if you'd like to contribute to funding or helping with transcripts and references, then visit uxpodcast.com slash support. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. James, do you know how you organize a space party? No, Pear, I have no idea. How do you organize a space party? You plan it. Oh.